This is a Culture Inject production. The Nevers Podcast presents Firefly Back in the Skies. Welcome back to our retrospective series, Firefly Back in the Skies. I'm Chirag, and we have with us as well... Hi, I'm Laura. And this week we're going to be talking a little bit about episode three, which is called Bushwhacked. Bushwhacked. (laughs) So uh, just a small synopsis for you uh, for this episode. Serenity is pulled in by an Alliance cruiser while investigating a spaceship that was attacked by Reavers. Simon and River must hide to prevent capture while something is wrong with the lone survivor of the attacked ship. And this uh, originally aired in uh, 2002, September 27th. So we have the usual cast and crew uh, introducing this time around. Uh, Doug Savant as Commander Harkin, Brandon Morgan as the sole survivor. This episode is written by Joss Whedon and Tim Minear, and it's directed by Tim Minear. So um, just out of curiosity, have you watched any of Tim's other shows? No, I have not. My relationship with his work is monogamous to Firefly. How about you? Uh, Yeah, I had a quick look online and I think we're pretty much the same. I mean, he's written episodes of um, like Dollhouse and Angel and that, obviously, but um, nothing else of his I don't think I've watched. So, yeah. I think he did American Horror Story, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I saw that on IMDb. I'm not a watcher of American Horror Story. I know some people who are big fans, but I've never actually watched a single episode of it. Yeah, neither have I. So we we have a question uh, over here, I guess, before we jump into the episode. It's asking, do you find it strange that Harkin was not given information on the TAMs? Information on them was made available to the bounty hunters, federal agents, and marshals, and was posted on the Cortex and shown to others by, I guess, the hands of blue guys. I thought that they were, uh, I thought he was given that information, because doesn't he ask on the ship, like, are you harboring fugitives? Yeah, I mean, I think it means kind of like, <clears throat> the the information they have seem to, seems to be very vague, that they're just looking for two um, fugitives, uh, a, a man and a woman, a brother and a sister, but that's kind of it. They're not given anything more than that. Like, I don't even think they possibly know their names, and I guess we go on to learn that obviously it's all very, very, very secretive. I don't know, unless you're really high up in the Alliance, you're not going to be privy to all of this uh, in-the-know stuff. But it would have, you know, would it be, um, would they have maybe caught them if it was more of a, a knowledgeable thing and they knew exactly who they were looking for? I don't know, probably not, I feel like. <laughs> uh, it It is kind of mirrored, though, in the sense that in the same way that the Alliance officers are not given any information on, on River, neither are we as an audience. Yeah. And the only people that know are the Alliance of the writers or whoever's in charge of the story. And it will stay that way for a while. <laughs> All right. Okay, so just jumping in, just uh, jumping into the conversation. So, I mean, I guess this, this episode opens uh, on them all playing this ball game. Which which is really nice because it's getting to see the crew have their, you know, their kind of fun downtime when they're not off pulling heists and whatever. Yeah, and um, I did have okay, I did have uh, some thoughts about the opening scene, which, as you said, is Simon and Anara watching the crew play hoop ball or something to that effect, mm-hmm. and. I think that I think that opening sequence uh, scene represents the key theme of this episode and of the show, which is civilization versus the frontier. So basically, like down below, the crew are like these uncivilized hooligans playing some poor man's hoop ball with with no proper rules or regulations, and it's chaotic and anarchic, right? And then the two most civilized, cultured characters, who are Simon and Inara are watching the game from above. So it's kind of like a Downton Abbey upstairs, <laughs> downstairs thing visually, where like we have the civilized characters in high positions spatially, 
uh, and they're looking down at the uncivilized peasants playing their gladiator games. In that scene, Inara asks, who's winning? And Simon responds, they don't seem to be playing by any civilized rules. And Inara responds, well, we're far from civilization. So right from that opening, we're establishing what this episode is going to be about. It's the civilization versus the frontier. right? And then um, that proximity alarm thing goes off and Wash has to go back to work. And Kaylee inviting Simon to join the game is metaphorically her inviting Simon to come down from his high civilized perch and unclench those buttocks and join her world of freedom and the frontier and living on that raggedy edge because like right now Simon is living on the raggedy edge but not by choice like emotionally he's still in that place of I'm a civilized doctor and I'm very intelligent and I got the highest grades and that kind of stuff yeah you so can I thought yeah you can see from their vantage point though that they can see that maybe this um uncivilized way of life is actually a bit more fun and a bit more adventurous and they're intrigued and the same as you see um you see river looking down on them and the the excitement in her face and it's kind of like nice to see like simon's looking at her and you can see that she's enjoying something she's not thinking about necessarily you know all this hardship that she's been through right and the contrast between simon and river's reactions is something that's very beautifully uh, captured, encapsulated in that scene where they're hanging on the side of the the Serenity, and we'll I'll talk about that a little bit later too. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you know what scene I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, lovely, lovely moment. So there's quite a few funny little quips in this bit, but um, I guess the funniest I think Wash shows quite well in this episode, just for like funny one-liners. So when the alarm goes off. He's panicking. He's like, you know, what can it be? He's like, who's flying this thing? <laughs> like, oh, that, that that would be me. Yeah. <laughs> He's a fun guy. He's a very fun guy. Uh, I was going to say about the Simon and Kaylee relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are on it, but maybe you can add to the, the chorus of what my thought is. But I, I, I thought, and I didn't realize it before I was watching this time, that their love story is so beautifully ironic in the sense that because we have Simon, this character who represents the absolute paragon of civilization, right? He's been so successful and so rewarded by Alliance High Society, being a doctor and, and you know, that... So Simon would love the Alliance. Simon loves the system archetypically. Mm-hmm. He's He loves that order and that hierarchy, he doesn't fight the machine. He is part of the machine. And by all conventional logic, Simon would be a guy who votes for the establishment. And then this weird, crazy circumstance happens with his sister that turns his life upside down. And he's forced to be on the run from a civilization in which he's very comfortable. And he doesn't want to be on the run, but he has to be. So I think the plan for his character could have been that Simon falling in love with Kaylee would be a metaphor for Simon owning his life on the raggedy edge and on the frontier and becoming more comfortable in the mud and the dirt and the engine grease and the freedom of that life and joining that hoop ball game that has no civilized rules and having fun with it and that kind of thing. I think that's the direction he was heading. Mm. And yet ultimately in the Serenity movie, they kind of just consummate that arc with him just uh, Kaylee and him getting together at the end and uh, but it would have been cool to go on that journey yeah I think like their love story as it were like on the face of it they're just these two really cute innocent shy people not necessarily but like when it comes to them it's like blatantly obvious that they both like each other yet neither of them are like brave enough to say it well, Kaylee's pretty brave, I have to say. She she gets pretty bold <laughs> later on. It, it's Simon who's kind of a little uh, uh, anal, or what's the right word? Like, he's kind of uh, tight, tight-assed, or, <laughs> or he, he doesn't express himself emotionally no. in the way that, you know, someone who's grown up in that kind of 
in the coldness of a disconnected society that it's very much what the alliance is a stand-in for we don't know really how to express our connection with each other in that way Mm -hmm. whereas kaylee who's so free and open and like her introduction is sexually like she's having sex with the dude in the engine room and she's so uh you know just unrestrained and unbridled that that's the good part of the edge (laughs) and we see the bad part and we will get to the bad part we will get to many bad parts yes (laughs) so in this episode they all end up uh up in the uh got what the part of the ship is uh you mean the derelict no i just mean up in the the, like in the control room of a ship where one would fly the ship (laughs) oh the cockpit the cockpit there we go (laughs) and so they all end up in the cockpit and they're seeing the derelict ship they're just kind of spinning around in space. Oh, and then obviously, yeah, a dead body hits the ship when Washi's there. That's that's got to be a bit of a shock to the system. Yeah, and then Jane's like, uh, I think I, my theory is that the guy did uh, the guy did him in and went for a swim to see how quickly the blood would boil out of his ears. Yeah, and Washi's just uh, like, you're a very up person. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's it's good to see. I think yeah, this this episode has a lot of good little lines from Wash and Jane. Actually, they're kind of both. He's so wonderfully terrible. It's brilliant. I love it. Um, I also like how we see River. Um, they're like, "What's going on? What is it?" And River says, "Ghosts or ghost." Um, so it's almost like we're seeing that she can sense or feel kind of what's going on. Like she 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 can sense everything on the other ship um she sees dead people <laughs> she sees yeah. dead people she, she has a sixth sense very special ability and we're seeing why the alliance might find this so valuable so just kind of like isolating one thing that i guess i'm not going in order here but one thing that i noticed that ties into the theme mm-hmm. is that the word nothing is used a lot did you notice this in the episode they use the word nothing a lot. Right. Like si- Simon says in one scene, uh, the thought of a little mylar and glass being the only thing separating a person from nothing mm-hmm. is terrifying. Um, and we we do see that Simon is terrified of that nothingness yep. with his whole claustrophobic, terrifying spacesuit walk. <laughs> or Like we can hear his breath and... It's building this horror and suspense thing and he's walking through that ship and there's like a red balloon that's uh, whoever designed that set did a terrific job. Yeah. Um, But I think so I think that the writers are using the word nothing in Simon's case to refer to the nothingness of deep space where there is no civilization or purpose like there's no alliance or hospitals or rank and order. It's just an infinite black void, and it's that nothingness that terrifies uh, Simon. Yeah. And it makes sense to me that Simon is terrified of deep space because he spent his whole life being very comfortable standing on land. Yeah. So if you take him into deep space where there's no oxygen and no rules and no gravity to be firmly rooted in, Simon is going to freak out. And, And I think... Which is why, going back to that scene where Simon and River are hiding from the Alliance by clinging to the outer body of Serenity, is such a beautiful character study, because when Simon looks out into the nothingness of space, he looks sick and afraid, because to him, that nothingness is something that's been forced onto him, and he longs for the somethingness of his hospital, his friends, uh, his social society, the comfortable alliance civilization, and that kind of stuff. But when River looks out into the nothingness, she has this beautiful expression of joy and excitement and wonder. Because for River, that vast nothingness represents f- like freedom from the somethingness of corrupt governments and malicious bureaucracies playing with her brain. Like to her, that's what civilization represents. So to be away from civilization and to be in this nothingness of space is liberation. Hmm. As opposed to for Simon, it's it's a trap that will consume him. 
but he looks at her and he sees her reaction and she's the reason he's in this situation so i thought that was such a such a beautiful like portrait of their relationship with each other in all of its um you know in all of its love and in all of its insecurity and regret mm. i thought that was really a cool scene and then i, I want to say one more instance in which the word nothing is used and i, I the word nothing is used again by Mal to describe the Reavers. So Mal says, uh, Reavers ain't men. They forgot how to be. Come to just nothing. They got out to the edge of the galaxy, to that place of nothing, and that's what they became. And so I think in Mal's case, the writers are using the word nothing to refer to what happens to a man who drifts too far from civilization and purpose and meaning. He, like, he becomes, man becomes a reaver, a mad, meaningless object of terror and appetite. And I, I think, when I think about it, that sounds to me like a metaphor for nihilism, where the fear is that if we drift too far from civilization and from purpose and meaning, and we realize that everything is meaningless... We could just become these mad, marauding, reavers, raping, killing, doing whatever. There's no moral code. And in Mao's case, when he was fighting the Alliance, his life had meaning and purpose. Mm. And when he lost that fight, he kind of lost his meaning and purpose too. And he did drift far away from civilization to the edge of the galaxy, that place of nothing... And he did become jaded and he did become nihilistic. And I think somewhere inside him, he knows that. He's aware of what he's lost and he wants to regain it. And I think that's also the reason that Jane is so scared of the Reavers. Because Jane doesn't believe in anything. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have any philosophy. And somewhere inside Jane, I think he's scared that in the Reavers he sees potentially himself and what he could become. Yeah, because we kind of established that Jane is the the guy with no morals and no kind of like code. You know, he's out for himself. So I guess he's that fine line between, you know, are you a good person or are you just nothing? <laughs> yeah, and he's like even philosophically, he's that fine line between humanity and all of its purpose and meaning and you can say self-importance and righteousness and whatever and on the other side of that you have just complete meaningless self-sustaining just do whatever it takes to satiate your own appetite and that kind of thing which is what the reavers are and jane is on that line the most and it makes sense that he's the guy who's the most scared of the reavers because he's the guy who's the most similar to them mm. Any other uh, thoughts or funny scenes or lines or anything? I mean, I guess one of the funniest moments was the spacesuit. Yeah. After the spacesuit walk that was very, uh, like you say, a very well set up scene with breathing. And yeah, <laughs> when he gets there and they're all just laughing. Well, he's laughing. Everyone else is like, why, why are you in a suit? <laughs> yeah, it's like the pilot episode with the whole thing with Kaylee, she's dead. Yeah, and then... And the yeah. To top it off, Kaylee goes over and is like, kind of like, oh, honey, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't on right. So if it was <laughs> the void of space, he he would have died, kind of thing. Yeah. You know, the thing that he's so scared of, but he put his suit on wrong and very easily could have died. But it's interesting to see how, yeah, like scared he is of something. Um, but for like Mal and Zoe and and whoever they, you know, putting a suit on and going out into the void of space is just a part of their life and you know it's just normal whereas like say for him in this the life that he's come from it's 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 scary and it's really something out there yeah well i think that has a lot to do with like like uh, we were talking about earlier which is the theme of civilization versus the frontier mm. where mal mal and zoe are very much in they're they're on that front they're for that frontier life yeah like they they do they do that they're comfortable with that Whereas Simon is more about the civilization life. He spent his whole life in civilization. So that's what he knows. So they are kind of on the opposite ends of that spectrum. 
And just as far as that theme goes, and I, I want to talk about it more broadly with this episode because it's really cool, I think, what this episode does. So as we as I talked about earlier, the opening scene represents the theme of civilization versus the frontier on a smaller scale. Like with Simon and Inara symbolizing civilization and the crew symbolizing the frontier. But the really interesting thing that this episode does in representing that theme on a more broad macro level, and I'll explain what I mean, is that... So this episode is divided into two parts. The first part takes place in the frontier, in deep space. It's on that dark, abandoned derelict. It's horrifying. Like, we encounter Reavers for the first time, for real. So that's the first part of the show. And then the second part of the episode takes place in this little bubble of civilization and order and hierarchy <laughs> when the Alliance comes in yeah. and the crew gets interrogated by the Alliance bureaucracy guy. So there's these two very distinct halves of the show that are so different from each other. And I think that the fact that they're so sharply different from one another, that makes me think they're being contrasted with each other. Mm-hmm on a writing level like on one hand you have reavers and on the other hand you have the alliance and reavers are philosophically the extreme version of what we think will happen to us in the absence of civilization and meaning and the alliance are philosophically what we think will happen to us when our civilization becomes bloated and encrusted with hierarchy and an autocracy so i think what this episode is really doing is it's setting up the reavers and the alliance uh to be two sides of the same coin Mm -hmm. those two things are really mirrored against each other the reavers and the alliance and that theme of civilization versus the frontier is kind of literalized when the alliance officers who represent their civilization are literally having to fight the reaver guy who represents the frontier and it is like a, it is a clash between the two in the most interesting way. So that's all I had to say really thematically. I thought this episode did a really good job with that. Yeah. So putting it back to just kind of the story, obviously when they dock with the other ship, we get the the weird little tentacle things, which I, I see as like a really um, intricate kind of piece of technology. Um and that's one of the Are you co- talking about the booby trap? Yeah, and I think it's one of those things where you're thinking about these reavers as being kind of like barbaric, I don't know, immoral creatures that are not really maybe thinking, yet they fly around in space. They can run spaceships and put contraptions like this everywhere. So also they're smart, you know, smart enough to do stuff like that, which makes them kind of scarier. Yeah, that's true. Like, they're not, they're not zombies, but then again, there's a thing that even a barbaric person if the technology is there they can just use it Mm. it's not like they had to engineer it themselves but if you give if you give a monkey a gun it can shoot you like it's able to you know what i mean Mm. and then we had the whole conversation about um oh no i'm skipping i'm skipping let's go um so obviously they go over to the ship oh and then we get um I love the whole, so the whole bit with Wash radioing over to, cause he's like, no one's replying to him. And he's like, what's happening? What's happening? Um, and Zoe just replies, not now, dear. <laughs> and he's just like, just stop straight away. He's like, okay. Because in, in that, in that you see like, again, how badass Zoe is, how kind of <laughs> lovely and obedient Wash is, but also, um, that, he knows Zoe's okay now, so he doesn't really care about it. <laughs> what's going on. Because this is after um, Jane's been attacked, right? And this is like Simon Simon's moment to shine and get a little bit of uh, payback on Jane. And he's like, oh yeah, he's a real beast. It's a wonder you're still alive. <laughs> he's throwing some... That's the tiny, tiniest guy. <laughs> throwing some real shade at Jane. And then we have, here's, here's where I was uh, skipping to, was is the whole um, funeral 
conversation. So the talk, book wants to go over and kind of like read the rights and everything and, and put these people to rest. And Mao, surprisingly, is like, yeah, we should do this. And you're kind of like, oh, okay, this is strange. This is a turn. And Anara's looking at him the same way, kind of like, well, you know, there's more to you than I thought kind of thing. And then after all of that, we realise it's just to get rid of them because Mal needs to sort out this booby trap situation. But does he, does he really care deep down about these people being put to rest? Because, you know, he's come from a place of war where you would try to yeah. put all of your soldiers to rest properly, right? You don't just leave them out on the on the battlefield. Yeah, no, that's true. I think he says that the there was an ulterior motive just to keep them busy. But I, I think we're meant to think deep down that there is something there where he did he did care about doing doing that the right way. But that's also like the, the leader thing to do, mm. which is to, you know, uh, prevent panic and get the situation under control and manage it while also coming off benevolent somehow. <laughs> Master strokes. <laughs> Um, and then we see them dealing with the booby trap and I feel like this is Kaylee's moment. I mean, she gets a lot of moments, you know, she is, um, like if she wasn't out in nowhere, she would be like, if she was, you know, in the civilization, she could have been like the Alliance's greatest engineer or something, you know, she's ships just, just speak to her and she's, this is like her superpower. And it's nice yeah, to it's see... Yeah, it's like the, the penance phenomenon. Yeah, and it's nice to see kind of how Mal and everyone else looks at her. Like, they, they're clearly very proud of her because she's, like, younger and it's just really nice to see. Yeah. What did you think of the interrogation scene? Yes. Um, <laughs> this is where I wrote all my next notes. I'm like, it's interesting to see kind of where everybody's priorities kind of lie. So when they take them... Kaylee's again speaking about the ship and that they're you know calling it a heap of junk or whatever and she's she's that's all that she's talking about in her interrogation right and then you've got Zoe who's like not not giving anything she's like a brick wall and she's so badass and then it cuts to Wash and he's just talking about Zoe because Zoe is his world right yeah <laughs> and <laughs> I don't know if you noticed, but when Inara was getting interrogated, uh, he was kind of, she was talking about Mal for some reason or another, I don't remember. Mm. And then it cuts back to the Alliance guy, and he asks, do you love him? And then for a second, uh, we as an audience are like, oh, he's asking her the question that we want to ask. Yeah. Does she, does she love Mal? Then it cuts and it's not Inara, it's Zoe he's asking the question to. <laughs> yeah. That's such such a good editing, uh, such a good cut to like subvert audience expectations there. And it does that a couple times in that in that sequence, in that interrogation sequence. It's a really good job. Yeah, because it I cuts like between their different interrogations and also between the, the soldiers searching the ship, right? So you kind of see bits right. and pieces all together. But... um. Yeah, I love that. They're like, um, do you love him? And she's like, you know, that's irrelevant. And they're like, well, he's your husband. <laughs> um, and then obviously you get the big conversation with Mao and about the Reavers yeah. like you were speaking about earlier. Um, it's interesting to see how, even though a lot of people on the border planets might still think that Reavers are a myth because they've not seen them, I think deep down they all kind of think it's real. Or like they're like Jane and they really, really are scared and, and think it's real. But um, like the Alliance are just like, nope, nope, they don't exist. This madness. You're, this is just a, right. a, a story, you know. Um, and right. Well, well, Mal even says that. Oh, this is your first tour this this deep in space. Like they they're so they they're so in that orbit of the central planets. Mm. They've never been this far away from civilization to experience what what is there and what happens to a man. We also get um, another quote from Mao about the war where he said, you know, we was on the losing side, but not the wrong one. Yes. So I I wanted to say something about that. Uh, and I'll just, I'll, I'm just going to target uh, two, two minutes, two to three minutes to go on a bit of a tangent 
on that line. Okay. So like you said, so Mal says, I may have been on the losing side, still not convinced it was the wrong one. So that piece of dialogue really clicked into my head something that one of the listeners has mentioned in several letters, which is characters fighting a battle regardless of the futility of the fight. You know, just like Penance goes to rescue Malady, and that's heroic regardless of the fact that her efforts were futile and meaningless because it was Malady's plan to die. Yeah. And another example, in the last episode of Angel, uh, Angel and his all of his surviving friends, they're all like hurt and bleeding and injured and on the verge of dying. And they charge into that losing battle mm-hmm. with the horde of demons and dragons and whatnot. They just, it's a losing battle and they still, you know, brandish their swords and get ready for the collision because the fight is about the fight, regardless of the futility of it. And there is, there's a pattern of this throughout the Whedonverse that I, that I wanted to just take a minute to relate to uh, the myth of Sisyphus. I don't know if you've heard of Sisyphus. Um, I think Mal is the ultimate Sisyphusian hero. And I'll explain why. And that may sound Greek and pretentious. Because (laughs) it is. But so in Greek mythology, the character of Sisyphus was this guy who was intensely passionate about life. And he was very clever. And he hated death. He hated death. And Sisyphus used his cleverness to fool the gods so that he could escape death and he could continue to live his passions in life. And he had a lot of passions in life. He really lived. Uh, like, And at one point, Sisyphus even shackles the personification of death in chains and everybody in the world stops dying. And life is passionate and meaningful and forever. Uh, but Hades got really pissed off that his whole his dark kingdom was getting empty, and um, uh, you know the floor plan was coming open or whatever. And so he got together with his family and the gods, and they grabbed Sisyphus, and the gods condemned him to an eternity of ceaselessly rolling a rock up a mountain. And when he reaches the top of the mountain, the rock just rolls back down of its own weight. And Sisyphus has to start again forever. So basically the punishment here is that Sisyphus must endure futile, meaningless labor forever. And the connection I want to make is that In that same exact way, Mal's punishment for being passionate and having a purpose and a meaning and fighting in a war that he believes in is that the Alliance have condemned him to a life at the edge of the galaxy where every day he pushes that rock up the mountain only for it to roll back down again. Every job Mal does, every job that he does to to keep fuel in the tank is a rock he's pushing up the mountain and every time that rock is going to roll right back to the bottom and Mal's going to start again forever. And that this is the problem of nihilism that everything we do is futile, futile labor and totally devoid of meaning and purpose. But I think the beautiful thing is that the fact that in the face of this curse of nihilism, of this punishment of nihilism, Sisyphus doesn't just sit at the top of the mountain and give up, right? He keeps rolling that rock. And in the same way, Mal, he gets shot, he gets chased, he gets hurt. But Mal doesn't give up, despite the futility of it all. He keeps flying. Mal just keeps going and keeps flying and uh, by the seat of his pants. And I think that is the beauty of it. And that we do what we do passionately despite the futility of it all and uh, and to quote a line from angel that joss whedon wrote if nothing we do matters then all that matters is what we do so i think that's kind of an idea that's very prevalent in all of these shows really 
And one little last connection I wanted to make. So as I was saying, like Sisyphus, the Greek figure, he's a figure who is like intensely passionate about life. And the name Zoe is a Greek name meaning life. And Zoe is Mal's biggest connection to a time in which he lived life passionately and believed in a higher purpose and a life of meaning. So I don't think it's a coincidence that Mal's connection to life is Zoe and her name means life in in Greek. And Mal is kind of that Sisyphusian hero. And I I don't know, all of those puzzle pieces kind of came together for me when I was watching it. And um, that's the that's the end of the tangent. (laughs) It was a very interesting tangent. Thank you. I always learn so much. Uh. Yeah, I mean, other than that, I, I, this was easily like a top five, top three episode for me. I loved this episode. Yeah, I, I put it up there with Out of Gas and Objects in Space and Janestown. This is like one of the top notch ones. I really liked it. I think for me, it's never kind of been one of the standouts, but I did thoroughly enjoy watching it this time around. Um, but it's not got the same kind of, um, big adventure, you know, or super funny stuff, like big events going on. It's more of like a very, like you've just explained, lots and lots of deep stuff going on. Um, And it's nice to get the first look at the closest thing that we see in this TV show to to a real Reaver. Yeah. And I I think that's, yeah, I think this, this, this episode really puts that kind of it really into perspective kind of life out there in the verse yeah but i will say the interrogation sequence is by far the funniest uh (laughs) sequence in any episode in all of the show i really it's like your favorite part yeah it is yeah i thought that was my my favorite of all of of everything (laughs) that was my favorite uh i mean those are my final thoughts really i love the episode yeah, it's a very nicely put together episode. Mm-hmm. And then um, towards the end, I guess Mal helps the Alliance guys and saves saves the commander's life, and they go off, but they lose the cargo, <laughs> and uh, you know, just like that, it's they in the beginning of the episode, he he rolls that rock up the hill, and they get the cargo, and they. Uh, get rid of the booby trap and they escape the booby trap and they escape the alliance but then they lose the cargo and the rock falls back to the bottom and we start again in the next episode rolling the rock back up (laughs) that's that's what this is the that's what this show is about really just continuing to do the work yeah even though there's really that deep in space there's no meaning to it almost other than the meaning that we make together as a crew and as friends and as lovers and as you know all all sorts of cool stuff so do you think in Mao's mind he kind of thinks that one day he's you know they'll have a better life and a more secure life or yes you do i do think that and i think that's the reason he kept simon and river I think that he subconsciously knows they are his key to regaining that purpose and that life of meaning. And and it is what happens in the movie Serenity, yeah. which is that River kind of is the key into re-entering that war against the Alliance for Mal and winning that war in a very meaningful way for the entire galaxy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we finally get to see in the movie him have his day. Exactly. Yeah. And I would be interested to see where it would go if Serenity had a sequel. Like what what would you talk about thematically with Mal? Where would he go from there? Now 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 to, now that I'm thinking of it, <laughs> you would almost have to subvert the alliance somehow where, you know, that revelation that they were creating Reavers kind of just destroys them. And they uh, turn to ash, and from that ash is born a new alliance that is a bit more progressive and that is, you know, uh, better. Mm-hmm. And 
I don't know. And then maybe the, the independents become the more antagonistic as opposed to the alliance. And maybe that gets subverted that way. And that would be an interesting universe to throw Mal into where now his object of contempt is the are the people who are really helping everyone. And his side of the coin are people who are causing riots and doing bad stuff. And that would be an interesting place to go, I feel like. Mm. So uh, we have an interview coming out with Tim Leban. Uh, Tim Leban is the author of uh, the new Firefly Generations. So we're going to play a little bit of the interview. But I just want to say that, you know, it was really fantastic to talk with Tim. Um He's written like Star Wars stuff and Alien and like Predator stuff in the past. So if you're interested in any of that, then you should definitely look up all of these um, all of these books. He's also done like a lot of novelizations of movies, and uh, one of his books, uh, The Silence, was made into a movie on Netflix. Yeah, but he was a really great guy. He had. Uh, uh, an entire wall of books <laughs> and a face hugger and all kinds of cool stuff in his room. Um, what What is a face hugger? Is that alien related? So that's alien related. Yeah, that's like the baby yeah. alien that comes out of the eggs. Okay. And it gives okay. you a nice hug on your face that just might kill yeah, you. Yeah, I was about to say, <laughs> like, that sounds cute. You know, that sounds like something that I would want to happen. <laughs> no, you definitely don't want that to happen. Have you not watched Alien? I have seen Alien. I saw the first one, but I didn't. I think I saw it when I was too little or something because uh, it, it didn't really marinate yeah. in my consciousness. So, you know, Alien spoiler for anyone that's not watched the 40 year old film. But um, yeah, he's like really into everything kind of horror and thriller, a lot of really good stuff. And obviously, Firefly Generations. Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So I guess we'll get started just by asking, you know, were you a watcher of Firefly when it first aired on TV? Not when it first aired. So I, I caught up with it um, subsequent to its first airing and, and watched the series and really enjoyed it. And that was that was quite a while ago. And then Titan approached me to write a novel. So I obviously I needed to do a rewatch, which I did on my um, I'm a keen cyclist and triath- triathlete. So I got my static bike set up in the living room and spent the day watching uh, I sat on my bike for four hours and watched several episodes of Firefly and started catching up with it. And uh, that was uh, it was great to go back to it and rediscover rediscover the universe, the verse. You mentioned there that you know Titan approached you, but yeah, what was the what was the full chain of events that kind of led you to finally writing Firefly Generations? Well, well, I'd um, I'd, I'd written quite a few tie-in novels before that. I think my first tie-in novel was it was either a Hellboy novel or uh, original novel, or I also did the novelization of Cabin in the Woods, another Joss Whedon project, which took ages to be published because uh, I think Cabin in the Woods was tied up in some studio going through or something. I can't remember the specifics. So I'd done a few tie-in novels, uh, some for other publishers, but I'd also done several for Titan. Uh, done an alien novel, and the Cabin in the Woods was for Titan, and um, I did the Rage War trilogy, Alien Predator trilogy as well. So... I had a good relationship. I still have a good relationship with Titan. And the editor there, Kat Camacho, approached me uh, to ask if I fancied doing a Firefly. They were, I think James Lovegrove had, had written several by them, two or three at least. Um, and uh, obviously I said yes. So uh, I, I get offered a fair bit of time work and I, I, I never say yes to something that I don't think I really enjoy doing. I've been offered a few that uh, I'm not sure that's really my thing. Um, but yeah, I jumped at this and, uh, it's such a, such a great rich, I think the fact that it's finished makes it more attractive to writers like me. Um, you know, the alien predator thing, it's still ongoing. There's still alien movies coming out and predator movies. Um, so it's a bit more difficult plonking yourself into the timeline and into the canon, but with, with Firefly, it's, it's sort of done and dusted. Although we all, you know, there's always the hope that maybe it'll be resurrected in some form which would be strange with the actors now, but, uh, you know, there's talk of all sorts of possibilities, animated series, I think they were talking about recently, weren't they? Yeah, we were always hoping for more and more, but um, 
like I say, it's nice that you've got kind of like this finite amount of stuff at the minute. So that kind of leads me into my next question of what the process is developing the story because, you know, it has to be something original to pique the reader's interest and the editor's. But, you know, did you spend a lot of time considering story ideas or did they kind of come to you relatively quickly? Um, so Titan asked me for several ideas, which which I then, you know, they they, they, they asked me basically four sort of novel ideas. And I gave them a paragraph each, four paragraphs. And Generations was one of them. And I, I sort of, it was it was one of my favourite favourites at the time. Another one of my favourites involved Niska, the, you know, the, the ultra, the ultra gangster. And the, the the team trying to break him out of a prison, which I thought would be great fun, um, but I'll I'll keep that up my sleeve. But yeah, generations was was the one that they 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 went for, and I think it probably some of the other tie-in stuff I've done, like the Rage War trilogy, is a real action fest, and generations sort of aired that way as well in some ways. I like the idea of putting the crew into a sort of back into a sort of war mentality in a way. So so Titan chose that paragraph and asked me to write a, a proposal so I, I worked on it some more and worked it into a sort of a novel proposal and they okayed that and sent me away to write it and that was the beginning of that was the end of the beginning but not the beginning of the end even because it, I wrote the novel and then there was a really heavy editorial process on the novel after I after I finished writing it just to make sure I got dotted you know dotted the i's and crossed the t's when it came to characterization and voice and uh, canon keeping in the timeline you know I couldn't blow up planets that might be used in future comics and things like that although I didn't blow up any planets which isn't a spoiler really so not a spoiler but can you just give our listeners kind of an idea of the narrative of Firefly Generations yes so I, um, I'm actually fascinated with the idea of generation ships and and arc ships I read I have written a couple of other stories based on that idea um, I wrote a novella called Rhyme which was a a take of the rhyme of the ancient mariner in space and that involved a, a sort of a generation ship so um for me one of the most intriguing aspects of firefly is the idea that it's us in the future it's humanity in the future and another another set of star systems how far from here we we're not really sure so i and uh, uh, earth that was is referred to a fair bit in the series and i i thought it'd be quite interesting to try and find out a bit more get some more hints about why we fled earth that was and how so um in generations uh it, it refers to a generation ship so the so the crew mal wins a star chart in a game of cards which leads the crew to one of the old arcs that came from earth that was and brought humanity to the verse which is still it's sort of mythical really i like the idea of the the mythical history in in firefly as well there there are there are um, Earth that was um, sort of remnants, you know, people deal in old antiques, as it were. But I like the idea of finding one of the actual ships that did it. So the crew go to find the ship with the idea of salvage, but it turns out that <clears throat> it's not an abandoned ship. It's It's been placed in orbit around a, um, a sort of a remote moon, remote, remote planet, and the Alliance have their hands in it as well. Yeah, no, that's a nice teaser amount for uh, listeners to hopefully want to go ahead and read this, yeah. uh, read read Firefly Generations. So you mentioned that there was quite a heavy editorial process because you know these are already established characters. Um, did you find it? Did you find it easy initially writing these characters? Um, I like to think I I got into the flow of it quite easily. I really like all the characters. Um, I mean, I should say that Inara and Book don't play a big part in in the book because they're absent from the adventures. Um, so listeners probably need to know that. But all the other characters, they're, they're so distinctive in the series. It's one of it's some series you uh, with ensemble cast. You sort of get confused sometimes about who who's who. Um, but in Firefly, they're all so distinctive. They all got their own real distinctive personalities and quirks and habits and peccadilloes you know so I, I I enjoyed um getting into that and there's some characters I sort of concentrated on more than others I guess I really like Jane I tried to give Jane a bit more uh, I suppose in my first drafts I tried to give him a bit more empathy and humanity but I, I sort of had to draw back on that a little bit because you know my editor said no he really is a bit of an ass um so so don't make him too likable uh He's a bit of a um, bumbling buffoon in some ways, you know, quite threatening, but I, I see him as um, 
I don't know, there's there's more to Jane. And I think we'd have found out, we'd have found out more about Jane if the series had continued, I think. I'm sure Joss Whedon had ideas for all the characters wheedling out their putt. Yeah. Um I, I enjoyed I enjoyed doing it. I did have to, like I say, in the editorial process, I had to tweak some of the probably more some of the language than some of the characterization, I think. Um I had to get, you know, get my head around the the quirky language they use, use some more Mandarin phrases for instance but luckily titan sent me um the encyclopedia of the firefly so there's a whole list of mandarin phrases in there so i i made sure i incorporated some of the some of the great mandarin swearing which is great fun <laughs> <laughs> so um what which character you said that jane's your favorite um well jane's my favorite character in firefly but um what was there a character that you found particularly challenging to write yeah so i think the the novel sort of concentrates on um, River in in many respects. The, the spine of the novel involves River and her past, without giving without giving away too much to the listeners. And and she's she's the most mysterious character in the series, I think. Um, so I, I found it uh, not difficult getting into her. Well, her mind's a pretty strange place anyway, but not difficult getting into her mind. But I was I was trying to be quite careful not to develop her character too much away from you know the the uh, away from Firefly canon really. So I found it quite difficult writing River. Um, like I say, especially as she's the sort of focus in in many respects. She's her and her relationship with someone they find on the ship is is the focus of the novel really. Um, but she's always intrigued me a lot. She's a pretty cool character, I think, and. The fact that she acts, you know, she's sort of confused and a bit woo-woo and then she can take out four guys in, in three seconds, you know, is pretty cool, really. So I enjoyed, enjoyed writing River. Yeah, she's pretty awesome. Pretty interesting character. My next question is, was there a character you enjoyed writing most? So was that Jane? Because you can kind of get away with saying a lot of stuff? Or? I think so. I quite like Jane. Um, but also Kaylee, you know, Kaylee's fun. I, I liked that. So there's a part in the novel where Kaylee and Jane uh, are alone for a while. And I, I really love the dynamic between them. Kaylee's so honest and nice and decent. And Jane, uh, on the surface, is sort of totally the opposite. It's like two opposite sides of um, the same character almost fighting each other. Uh, but yeah, I think I enjoy Jane the most uh, writing him because he's, you, you always enjoy, as a writer, I sort of enjoy writing characters who are, you know, have dark side and light side, different depths, you know. So he was fun. So the voice acting done by James Anderson Foster for the audiobook is excellent. Mm. Do you get any say in who narrates your books? Um, no, not not very often, and especially not for um, for tie-in projects. I think that's that's sort of way out of my hands. Uh, you know, my my own original novels, I usually get a, I'm usually sent like sample uh, readings from from narrators, um, but even something like. Yeah, the first Alien novel I did for Titan was was turned into a fantastic audio dramatization by Dirk Maggs, the legendary Dirk Maggs. Um, it had uh, Rutger Hauer in it and all, all that, you know. And I, I didn't, you know, I love I love hearing from people who say how much they love it. But um, to be honest, I didn't have an awful lot to do with it. Uh, Dirk did the adaptations and and obviously the casting and all that was out of my hands. Mm-hmm. And I don't mind that. It's it's good to hear somebody else's take on what I've written. And sometimes you you hear stuff in there that, oh blimey, did I write that? I'm not sure that's what I meant, but it's good, you know. So we kind of touched on this already, um, but you know, how did you approach these stories? We have an established world and characters, but you you know, you're a creator who wants to create, you know, as much of your own story as possible. Um, were you able to do whatever you want, or were you given prompts? So you said they asked you to kind of pitch yeah a few stories but they did they give you any pointers as to things that they might want to see or is kind of completely up to you honestly i i think at the time it was just pitches a few ideas uh and there are obviously limits to what you can do and also so my novel's based between um between firefly and serenity so because of the timeline and because of canon there, there's limits to what you can do and who, who you can kill obviously um you know, I can't wipe out the entire crew in a in a great in a great climax battle because that just wouldn't work. But most tie-in stuff I've done, like I did a Star Wars novel, and that was similarly left up to me, uh, unless unless my ideas intruded on stuff they were working on elsewhere. 
That's my Star Wars novel. It was twenty five thousand years before A New Hope, so it was like it was literally the earliest novel in the Star Wars timeline, which is great because it meant I didn't have to read one hundred fifty other novels to make sure I, I fitted in the timeline well. But they uh, edit, publishers tend to give you as much free reign as as possible, whilst ensuring you don't mess things up for the timeline, and and they have to ensure canon. You know, um, Cat at Titan was particularly good at making sure I didn't. Uh, write a character out, write somebody out of character for no apparent reason or mess up you know like it, like there are hands of blue in the novel for instance and she made sure i was pretty careful about how i wrote them so that it didn't detract from people's memories of them in the series for instance but yeah pretty much free reign on the story um characters have their own limitations but it, it's quite nice to try and try and get into their heads and, and figure out, you know, what makes them tick a little bit more than you maybe see in the series. So you kind of just talked about this already, but uh, basically we know of a writer uh, contracted to write for an established IP and there was kind of this brand Bible and things that they couldn't change. So, you know, what was the working relationship like with Fox and Titan? And did you have to work with a brand Bible? I know you just mentioned that you have someone who kind of says, you know, you can do this, you can't do that. Um yeah, so I didn't deal with Fox directly on this. Um, I did when I was doing Alien books, but with with this, I was dealing straight with Titan, and they were going to Fox for approvals, which they I think they only did. I think they only did twice. I think they got the original story approved from Fox and said, "Yep, go ahead." And then um, when the novel was finished and edited, I think they sent that to Fox for approval. Um, so yeah, Cat. It was Cat Camacho. Um, and uh, a couple of other guys at Titan had a had a hand in sort of steering the project after I'd written it. But they did send me a load of, uh, I got the, the Firefly Encyclopedia, uh, got two or three other Firefly books here that was, the encyclopedia especially was priceless. Like I probably couldn't have done it without that. Or I could have, but it would have meant watching the series like 15 times to get references. But the encyclopedia, for instance, has got almost a map of the verse laying out the star, uh, the stars and the planets and the moons um, and loads of uh, weapon, even stuff like weaponry, you know, Jane, Jane does love his guns, but I had to make sure that uh, he used used in the same way as he does in the series, for instance. So the encyclopedia was that it was the Bible really. And there it was, it was really uh, priceless for me using that writing the book. And then Kat's input at the end was was brilliant. Um, her editorial. Kat's a, a big Firefly fan, obviously, and she's really sharp on picking up stuff that, I've, that I might have done wrong. So yeah, that was great. So was there anything that you wanted to write that Fox or Disney wouldn't allow, or did pretty much everything you sent initially get, you know, the okay? Um, I think it was all okay, really. Uh, you know, other than what I've mentioned about the the editorial tweaks. I th- uh, the the one thing I didn't do in my first draft, which they which Titan tried to encourage, was looking at more the history of Earth that was and how that fed into the verse. So um, <clears throat> I had to go back in and sort of think up some more um, examples of uh, what might be on the the Sun Tzu, the name of the the generation ship. Uh, that might have been brought from Earth that was. So that was quite interesting doing that. But I don't think there was anything that Fox read and thought, whoa, can't, that can't happen, you know. And that that's <laughs> Titan's job to make sure, and it worked well to make sure that what I'd written was approved. And it was I'm pretty sure it was approved without comment from, or without, you know, without any changes from Fox eventually, after a couple of edits. <laughs> you know, the stories that you've written are now considered canon, does that make you feel like good and proud to kind of be part of this universe or does it stress you out a little bit? No, it's great. I love it. It's, um, I, I'm pretty sure the, I mean, the alien novels I've written are, are canon as well, but I'm, but I, I don't know how that changes when it comes to, you know, um, Ridley Scott making new movies. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's great. It's, it's nice. Uh, it, it does open you up to, I'm not as big a Firefly fan as a lot of the readers. And I'll say the same about the Star Wars novel I've written. You know, some of the readers, uh, some of the reviews mention stuff. I think, whoa, I, I wouldn't even have thought of that. You know, the way the way um, Jane said something on page 42, he wouldn't have said it like that. So really? I don't know. Um, so it, it, it opens you up to um, serious fans 
analysis and but that's fine you know i know that going in the star wars novel was interesting because that was canon when i wrote it and now it's not it's star wars legends because disney <laughs> but then you know <laughs> but that's fine i was hoping to write a trilogy and uh i think if disney hadn't if disney hadn't given george lucas four billion dollars i might have been able to write a trilogy but i'm not complaining <laughs> that's okay I like that though because Disney. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there's lots of uh, there's. I think the fact that Disney took over Star Wars so far has been great. They've we've um, especially the the series Mandalorian. I thought was just a stunning bit of work, um, and it's just nice for seeing. You know, we saw Rogue One and things like that, which is such a great film. So, was there a scene that you particularly enjoyed writing? Like a favorite part of the of the book? I like the uh, the sort of. Uh, again, trying not to give too much away, but there's a bit of a sort of a battle on the ship towards the end. And I like I like writing battle scenes in space. I don't know why that's a very particular thing, but I quite enjoy it. And I did it on, on my the, the Alien and Predator trilogy. It's, it's just a wide ranging. It's a it's a dis, it's a far distant war in space. And I had so much fun doing that. So I did it on a smaller scale in Generations. Um, and I like the sort of confusion of battle and failing communications and the team being split up, not knowing what's happened to other members. Like, um, you know, uh, Wash and Zoe, for instance, not really um, knowing what's going on with each other. Uh, Wash suffers a bit in my book, bless him. So I, I, I enjoy writing the battle scenes, but I also I really enjoyed writing Kaylee and Jane being off together. Like I mentioned before, I enjoyed their interaction between those two characters, especially when they're under threat. And they're sort of trying to help each other. You sort of see a more, slightly more heroic side of Jane there, I think. I think that was left in. <laughs> I can say it is a long process. So I guess once you're, you know, you don't really go back and reread everything that you've written or you take up a, a large portion of your life, wouldn't it? Well, during the editorial process, it was, I probably read the, I mean, I don't know how many times I read the book, probably, you know, during the editorial process another three or four times I went through uh completely and then there's often you dip in dip in and out of sections to tweak stuff here and there um it's but it's very I don't think I've ever received a box of my books and opened it and read it you know the last time I read it is the last is the line edit really sick of it by then I've read it hundreds <laughs> God. yeah after that it's just for the fans to enjoy yeah, it's on the shelf. You know, I've got my got my ego shelf, as most writers. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it, it's and it's a lovely looking book. I mean, Titan did a great job with their the Firefly novels. They all look they all look gorgeous, distressed covers, and yeah, it looks great. It looks like an artifact from the verse, the Firefly novel. I think He's, you can sort of think, oh, that's been on a desert planet for a year or two. That was the little snippet of the interview. You know, like I said, we chatted about. So that was the Rage War which is Predator Incursion, Alien Invasion, Alien vs. Predator, Armageddon, and they are all like one story. Um, so if you're interested in Alien, definitely give give those a look. Um, but yeah, the full interview will be released later in this week. Um, you, you know what they should do? Oh, sorry, I, I just wanted to throw a little idea to the Alien book people. Okay. On the last, on the last page of their books... They should just have when the reader turns the page, like a pop out <laughs> thing that just like goes uh, boo, like right in their face. I think that would be a good idea. See, um, every- it's free. Everyone I meet kind of says that Alien is, or would probably describe the Alien movies as a sci-fi. Um, but like, if you ask my yeah. bro- my brother what his favorite horror movie is, he will say Alien. Um. Because he straight up, and it is, it is a horror, but it's kind of gone into horror, because it's sci-fi, it's horror sci-fi, and then it kind of just ends up getting branded as sci-fi. When really, at its depth, it is a horror movie that just happens to be that the bad guys in this horror movie aren't ghosts or zombies or whatever, they're aliens. So, But my brother stands by that it's like the scariest movie of all time. And it is if you watch it, you know, it's all very dark, and the suspense in the Alien movies is just kind of, like, insane. Um, and the same if you play any of the games. Some of the... Uh, there's good and bad if you're looking into the Alien uh, games. But um, there's, they're definitely... If you can say anything about them, they are they are extremely scary. <laughs> because most of, most of it's just, like, wandering around dark spaces waiting for something to jump out at you, you know? 
It's a bit like Dead Space. Yeah, I was going to say very much like Dead Space, that kind of suspenseful game. You're in the void of space, you've got this little gun, and you know that there are things that can kill you around every corner. Okay, a a voice message from our friend from the podcast, Steve Brown. Here we go. This is Steve, and this is for Bushwhacked. I'm assuming, I believe you said you're going to follow the order that Joss has them on the Blu-ray, so that would put uh, Bushwhacked after Train Job. (laughs) I forgot about that, that Kaylee, you got this on wrong. (laughs) That was hilarious. I absolutely love that brief interrogation scene with all the different characters and and washes. Have you ever been with a warrior woman? Just just great, <laughs> just terrific. Such a good episode. I don't I don't know if I'd, I'd classify it as one of my favorites of the season, but you know when you only have thirteen episodes, there's not a lot to choose from as far as favorites or not favorites. Uh, it does set up a lot for us. It shows us who the alliance is, shows us who the reavers are, shows us uh, kind of. Uh, rivers powers and things so it really is a good a good episode and uh i i like it i enjoy it it's uh it was a good rewatch and i'm, I'm looking forward to the rest of this uh, season uh, going along with you uh, on this rewatch so can't wait to hear you guys talk about this one and if i didn't mention it before i, I love the fact that you guys uh the, the majority of, of you guys uh, saw the movie serenity and that's what prompted you to check out the TV series, which for some of us, we saw the TV series and we were so just jazzed when the movie came out. So, all right, talk to you later. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely one of my favorite episodes, top five for sure. And um, we can maybe do a ranking later, Mm. but I I, tentatively, I would say number one, Out of Gas, number two, Objects in Space, number three, Janestown, and number four, this one. That's the hierarchy so far. Obviously, that's fluid, and it changes with my preferences, um, but that's how I feel in this moment, and uh, concretizing that feeling, I will, you know, tell, that's that's the ranking as far as today. Yeah, see, I'm not sure on my rankings, because I know, like, if I was ever just going to throw on an episode, it would be Janestown or Shindig, because they're kind of, like, fun, adventurous, you can just kind of watch them and have fun, Um so yeah, I think as we go along, I will be compiling my kind of rankings, and when we get to the end, we'll we'll see. When well, my... rewatchability, rewatchability, and what is your favorite are two different things, right? Cool. You have a thank spe- you, Steve Brown. <laughs> thank you, Steve Brown. So uh, yeah, that brings us to the end. Um, Chirag has taught us lots of um, interesting things this episode. I hope that our yeah. listeners have learned as much as I have. And there, uh, you, there'll be a pop quiz on the next podcast. So <laughs> no, my memory's not very good. Study up. I'll be like uh, a guy pushed a boulder up a hill. We learn things. <laughs> <laughs> um, All right. No, thank you, Chirag, and uh, thank you, listeners. Um, if you have any letters that you would like us to discuss, um, please send them to fireflybits at gmail.com. That's fireflybits at gmail.com. That's it for this episode. Thank you again for listening, everybody. Have a good a good day or night, <laughs> depending on your time zone. Thanks for listening. Bye.